Welcome to Anyway, I'll Drink to That, a Booze and Sam's production where we serve up tales in a tall glass, shaken, stirred, and delicious. Every drink has a story to tell, and I'm going to tell it. We like to have fun here. I drink, I tell a tale, and I hope that most of it is true. I'm your host, Sam, also known as Booze and Samta, preferring to go simply by Sam from Booze and Sam's. So saddle up with a good cocktail and give me a few minutes of your time for a mystery and a drink that changed the world. Before we get started, I'm your host, Sam, from Boots and Sam's. I spent decades selflessly researching some of the best drinks from all over the world, and I brought a few of my favorites back to America just for you. Take American Gluvine, for example. You may be wondering, what's Gluvine? And how can such a foreign-sounding word be American? Well, Glühwein's actually a German drink. But here's the thing. If you want to have it done right, it's got to be American. Glühwein comes from Germany. It's a Christmas thing. A mulling spice mix added to hot wine. But you know, here in America, we do it better. We add it to wine, yes. But also to whiskey or rum for hot toddies. Or a dozen other cocktails to create an infused orange, cinnamon, and spice delight. We even have it when surfing in California. Because that's how we roll, baby. And that's also why I like my Bavarian stuff made in America. It's just done right that way. You know, I don't run ads on this show. I do this because I enjoy history, alcohol, and spinning a good yarn now and again. And hope that you enjoy the stories I tell, too. All I ask in return is that if you like the tale I told, you share it. It's that simple. If you laughed, learned something, whatever, share the show. It's the best way that we can reach more people and continue to create content that you enjoy. Your support would mean the world to me. Thanks in advance. Now, on to your show. On June 15, 1389, under the command of Sultan Murad, an invading Ottoman Empire army faced off against a defending Serbian army led by Prince Lazar. The battle was fought in a field in land ruled by the Serbians, in a spot about three miles northwest of what is today Pristina, in Kosovo. The Serbian army was a mix of Serbians, Bosnians, and a European Christian coalition. Prince Lazar could assemble such an army. After all, he was the most powerful of all the Serbian lords. What he said went. Now this was a long time before reliable methods of record-keeping existed, so we don't know exactly what happened that day on June 15th, but we do know that both armies were decimated, wiped out. Prince Lazar, dead. Sultan Murad, adios. This was the only time, in fact, during the entire Ottoman Empire that an actual Ottoman Sultan was ever killed in battle. But what matters more about this encounter was the depleted Serbians, who simply couldn't muster any more strength to stave off future invading Ottoman armies and a national and religious holiday that survives still today, Vidovdan, which commemorates the Kosovo myth as it came to be known. The myth turned into Serbian folklore and rose to a position of Serbian nationalism of a courageous army fighting for freedom from a much more powerful invading army. That holiday, Vidovdan, is celebrated in June every year still today. Yet one of the most remarkable things is the course that battle set back in 1389, when two armies decided to poke each other to literal death that unveiled a long and bloody line of events, pain, and death 
which created a drink that holds none of that pain and all of the elegance we'd prefer to remember about humanity. Fast forward 525 years to the day, to the year 1914 in June, on that special national Serbian holiday when a few more Serbians and Bosnians made history once again. It was Danilo, a prior school teacher. I'm sure he would have never expected the cataclysmic landslide of events that unveiled from his plan, a plan masterfully laid out and blundered at every turn. Perhaps, if him and his conspirators had known that their plan to take one man's life in honor of, once more, Serbian nationalism would actually take the lives of 9 million people and injure another 23 million, they would have reconsidered. Perhaps, if they had had a bit more time to sit down and sip this cocktail which lay at the end of the deadliest war ever in human history, there would be no more deaths. There would be no more power struggles. There would be no more cocktail. Of course, that's all foolish thinking, for humans will always fight and struggle and kill for their identities. Without an identity, who are we after all? So, Danilo did what he had to do. He coordinated his assassins along the route that the 1911 Grafen Swift double phaeton would take. And with a bit of luck and good timing, Serbia would fight back in bold fashion against those seeking to take its land. You see, during this time, there was a man named Franz, a very important Austrian man named Franz, who believed that he could move from his control of Bosnia onto his control of Serbia and the land that had been fought for over 500 years ago. So, the six automobiles carrying police officers, special security officers, the mayor, the chief of police, high-ranking military officials, and Franz himself set out on a predetermined and announced route not knowing that six assassins were planted along that route. As the motor cars crawled down the streets of Sarajevo, heading closer and closer to their first bomber, Franz and his beautiful wife, Sofia, let their hair blow in the wind with the top down on the sports car. You see, Archduke Franz Ferdinand wasn't worried, not with all the protection around him. And so when they passed the first bomber on that day, nothing happened. The first assassin failed to act. But... Next to this first assassin was another assassin. This one was armed with a bomb and a pistol. But he too failed to act. So the sports car roared on by, oblivious to the danger facing it, until it met the third bomber. And this one did act. This one threw a well-timed bomb at Franz Ferdinand's sports car. The bomb bounced off the convertible cover and into the street, where it detonated and blew up the car behind it, wounding 20 people. Now aware of their immediate danger, the motorcade took off as fast as it could to town hall. They made it safely, where Franz, understandably disheveled, proceeded to still give his speech using the wet, blood-covered prepared text which had been removed from the bomb vehicle and brought to him. Now it's about this time that the nerves of Franz were definitely shot. With his wife, the love of his life, on the run in a foreign country and attacked, yet forced to pretend as the Serbians were, that all was okay. Now was a moment, if there ever was one, for a few sips of a strong, clear drink that could steady the nerves, and would steady the nerves of so many in the following years. Yet Franz, ever concerned about the victims of the tragic bombing incident, decided to, after delivering his speech, to head to the hospital to visit the wounded. Even this would have been okay, but it was a blunder, a simple mistake that even the most experienced driver does make now and again. A jam clutch, 
which stalled the vehicle on the way there, which left the Archduke exposed in the fourth assassin with a handgun pointed right at him. This assassin took his shot, a shot that sent a bullet through the jugular of Franz, and a second shot aimed at the governor but missing and hitting Franz's wife in the abdominal. Franz's final words before he sputtered to death were, Sophie, Sophie, don't die, live for our children, followed by uttering several times, It is nothing. It is nothing. In response to those asking about his injury, Yet it was something. In fact, it became everything. And over the course of the next few years, more would die and hope they were living for their children, their wives, their parents. But nine million of them wouldn't. For after the death of Franz and Austria's declaration of war on Serbia, Russia joined in on Serbia's side and Germany, France, and Britain were also drawn in via alliances until the sides were drawn. The Allies and the Axis powers, World War I, the Great War. And the Allied force mingled their troops, sending them all over the European war fronts to defend Axis power invasions. The U.S., why they stayed on the sideline for as long as they could, not wanting to upset either side. After all, the U.S. was a relatively new power. Were they even a power yet? By the end of it all, surely they would be. When the rest of the countries had carved themselves apart, there was no doubt at that point. But, back in 1914, after a group of assassins, 525 years after a mythical battle, started a cascade of dominoes that left English soldiers on foreign soil witnessing the horrors of war, they found some way to cope. They turned to some drink. A drink in particular that possessed a potent kick as fierce as the shells they drank it out of. This drink tasted sweet, but not too sweet and knocked down a bit with the addition of citrus. They drank this mixture out of used shells, a very unfitting start for a very classy drink. When it made its way to the United States a year later in 1915, it had gentrified, but perhaps it had already been there under a different name, served in Boston in the late 1860s by Charles Dickens himself at parties. Perhaps it took World War I and all the drama and violence and death unfolding in that hemisphere to really elevate this drink into something special. Either way, blood and war and gunpowder wasn't good for civilized society, even if it could be good for selling drinks. So the drink grew up. It changed through the years until it ended up in a tall glass. Back then, you could make the drink with Applejack or sometimes even Cognac. Both of those check out considering where in the world this drink came from. In fact, Soldiers would drink whatever they could get their shaking hands on, just to steady their hands. The unsteady origin of this drink has other stories, though, too. Several years after the soldiers drank it, a wartime reporter allegedly brought it back to the U.S. and shared it there. Years later, after dirt covered the atrocities men will bring on one another for that same dirt, the drink was popularized in Europe by a famous bartender named Henry at a well-known bar which took his name in Paris. Henry, however, would remain in obscurity for this drink. His neighbor Harry would claim the credit. Harry also ran a bar named Harry's Bar. It was not too different from Henry and Henry's Bar. They were also right next door to each other. So, to the victor goes the spoils, and the history, I suppose. History does remember the standing hero, or the one who cowered long enough to still be standing when the rest of the heroes had shot each other to death with cannons, after sipping cocktails out of used shells. 
Harry was that hero. He wrote the recipe allegedly down in his book, The ABC of Mixing Drink, a famous cocktail book. Harry claimed a barkeep in London had modeled the drink after a Tom Collins, but used gin and one other very important ingredient. In the end, who really knows where the drink came from? It did rise to prominence during a time of great chaos, and chaos brings with it a loss of details, a forgetting of the facts. So, I like to think that the true story, the real history of this drink, was one of liquid courage to the soldiers that were asked to do unspeakable things to their fellow humans at the beckoning of a few others wearing suits. And even today, that drink, this drink, is a reminder of how horrible humans can be to one another, the ways we can inhibit and stunt others out of pride, and also the way that courage can break those barriers and set us all free, so we can stand together sipping out of shells. And that's why it became the drink of choice in Europe for English soldiers on the French front lines as they shot the Soy Santo Quince and drank a bit of gin with some lemon, sugar, and champagne out of the empty cannon shelves from the cannon that could lay you flat with alarming precision like this drink. Named after the shell, shot from the cannon, in the war that took millions of lives, and created a myth, not unlike the myth from a war, started exactly 525 years before, for a similar reason, one country trying to control another. The canon, simply referred to as Soy Santo Quince, by those that fired it, for the deadly accurate 75mm bore that gave it its name. And the drink, better known today not by the French name of the canon, but the English translation, French 75. A light drink, made with champagne, that makes you wonder how anyone could not only operate a cannon after such a strong drink, but want to after finding so much beautiful peace within its flavors. Another mystery of humans better left unsolved. Anyway, I'll drink to that. This has been a Booze and Sam's production. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If so, please share it. Also, connect with us online at boozeandsams.com. That's B-O-O-Z-N-S-A-M-S, boozeandsams.com. And subscribe now to the podcast to be updated when new episodes are released. As a final aside, it should be noted that the internet is a place of conflicting stories and facts. I try hard to tell as accurate a tale as possible, but you may have heard or read something about a person, event, or thing different than the way I tell it. That doesn't make me wrong. After all, I'm just sipping a cocktail, telling you a story, just chatting like we're old friends at a bar looking to pass time and learn something new. Let's just cheers to that and enjoy a drink together. <laughs>